Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Stella, and this is Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 86 for August MMXIV. Backworld Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are, and I think I was in error last time and said Backroll 34 was in October, but that's wrong, October's Backroll 35 and Gotham Academy number 1, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Also, Backworld Oracle is brought to you by TweakedAudio.com. High-performance, noise-reducing earbuds. Purchasers who use the code TBUSAVES get 33% off their whole order and free worldwide shipping. TweakedAudio.com. Plug in, turn up the volume, and give us a try. Backworld Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Find us trending on Twitter with the hashtag TBU family. Well, I gots me some mail. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. Mail's here. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. Mail. 
lots of people writing in, uh, probably a lot of, uh, mostly because of the killing joke, actually. So very thankful that we have, uh, that it made an impact and that people enjoyed it. Hopefully they, they stick on for the rest of the show. So first from Craig, Falkenham. So perhaps it is German, I don't know. I understand that what the Joker did to Barbara and Jim was awful and that he could have done other things to try to drive Jim crazy without exposing the readers to sexual assault of both of them. But the Joker is a villain. He is supposed to commit crimes and murder and kill and do terrible things. This is not something we would want to see Batman do. Not sure if you meant Joker. But while I find the actions deplorable, I have no problem with the Joker doing them because he is supposed to do evil things just my two cents oh make that five cents we got rid of the penny here in canada Ooh, a canadian that's awesome so you know something sad about canada i would like to say first of all i very much love canada and i used to live in upstate new york actually i guess more western my grandparents were in upstate uh i lived in buffalo and i loved just like taking trips across the border seeing niagara falls on both sides and i'm just really bummed that now you need a passport i mean i have a passport but it's just sad that you know I feel like we were kindred spirits, and now we've kind of severed this relationship between us and Canada. But this is not the U.S.-Canadian relations podcast. So, um, you know, Craig, I, I appreciate you writing, of course, but I'm still I'm still going to disagree with this. I just think that, I don't know. It, yes, I agree that Joker's a villain, but... I don't know. You know, whenever I saw the Joker and and kind of what he what he had been doing and kind of his shtick and I guess we can say before Snyder's run Death of the Family cuz there he just went, you know, bat, you know, what crazy, but even more so than he was. I I just fe- felt like it was over the top for me. So I know this is the quintessential Joker story, but I still have problems with it and I I don't think it'll ever change. So I'm just I'm just gonna continue to disagree. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, next up from Carolyn. Hi, Stella. I discovered your podcast in the winter when I was writing an academic paper about Barbara Gordon, feminist theory, and disability theory. I'm a political scientist. I wrote about gender and law and more recently about gender and comics. I'm attaching it for you if you're interested. It's going to be in a journal called Image Text in the fall. Anyway, I'm listening to your Killing Joke podcast, and as usual, I agree with your point of view. I hate what they did to Babs, even though I love the character of Oracle. I feel like my Batman would be visibly upset about what's happening and wouldn't laugh with the Joker, etc. I do think it's a well-written story in terms of its construction, but that doesn't mean I feel sorry for the Joker or forgive Batman's behavior. If you aren't totally done with and sick of the book, you might want to see the book club about it I participated in with a bunch of others from the Talking Comics podcast. That's here. The part where we introduce ourselves is pretty long. Feel free to skip it. And uh, you can, obviously, there's a link here, but I'm not going to spell out the link. But yeah, if you just, the channel is Talking Comics. And if you just go on YouTube and put in Talking Comics Book Club, The Killing Joke, uh, it should probably pop right up. It's about two and a half hours or so. Uh, Yeah, you could probably, if you want to, skip the introduction of the people and kind of get to the meat there i really look forward to your suicide squad at all podcasts and i look forward to the new back row of burnside as well best carolyn so carolyn thanks for writing in glad to see that i don't know if it helped with your academic paper or not but it's awesome just to think of the things that you're doing and uh 
thanks for finding the show and for writing in and and i'm glad that you agree with me about what happened in the killing joke next up from one of my friends my another canadian friend in fact jay he said i'm about to head to bed and listen to part one of your killing joke podcast you know what's funny about jay is that he actually always listens to my show when he is going to bed i don't know what that says about me perhaps my tone of voice and I don't know the, the dulcet tones or it just puts him to sleep and and I have no idea how much he actually retains what I say but you know he's listening so I appreciate that uh, I should have called or written in we should talk about the next time we were chatting at the time I really thought it was a great graphic novel as I think I've said I don't think I fully appreciated that they were permanently affecting Barbara slash Batgirl with that story i.e. I don't think I realized that it was going to be part of canon and continuity that being said, I really enjoyed it and I thought it was well written. I'd have to go back and read it again because it came out when I was in high school. I liked it so much that I bought a second copy and I didn't even collect Batman or even hardly any DC stuff for that matter. I collected Green Arrow and I also bought a hardcover Arkham Asylum at one point and that's about it. I like Killing Joke so much. I remember writing some quotes from it on my binders in high school. Insanity, madness is the emergency exit and if I have to have a pass, I prefer it to be multiple choice. Amazing that I still remember those all these years later. There aren't many comics that I can say that for at all. I loved it. Ha ha. I think I was always interested in insanity and I love that they made the Joker truly despicable instead of just a regular schlocky villain. Can't wait to hear what your thoughts were. I wonder if I'd still like the story if I were to reread it today. Maybe it just struck a chord in my angsty teenage psyche. Well, Jay, I'm sure you are not alone. You may be alone writing those comments on your binder. <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're in good company with people who, who love the show. and I'm and, um, sorry, not the show. Who love the book and were affected by it and, and just think it's the greatest thing. But I'm, I'm, I will never be a part of that population. From Ian, one of our people who called in, he says, Dear Stella, and then in parentheses, Ann Donovan. Thanks so much for hosting the call-in special. I really enjoyed calling in and listening to the podcast. It was so delightful. The Ostrander interview was incredible, warm, thoughtful, and of course, full of great insight. I'm not at all biased, by the way. My own interpretation of some of the killing joke was said much better by Mr. Ostrander. I hope you have some more call-in episodes in the future and look forward to listening to it as Barbara begins the fantastic journey to Oracle. Well, thanks for calling in, Ian. And I'm sorry for that blip of memory when I was like, who is this? Hmm. But <laughs> then I suddenly had the epiphany and, and knew what it was. Yeah, the call-in was super fun. I feel like it, it made a lot of sense just because it was this big landmark for the character. And I'm wondering when the next big landmark could be potentially you know I really see like no man's land or something like that but it's just fun to have them and and talk to other people as well so we'll see when that next one is but it, it sort of takes a lot of planning right because you almost you need a partner in crime uh, in order to keep the recording going so that you don't have just snippets and then you have to organize all the snippets together so it's good to have someone constantly recording and then you just pull someone in and then hang up on that individual and then you just have to get the word out and have the proper planning for it and everything. So we'll see when uh, when it happens. I'm not sure when that will be. From Angela, who wrote, who was one of the people who wrote in for the call-in show, she says, Hi, Cell. Oh, my goodness, that interview with John Astrander was awesome. And then later you read my email, so I can sort of kind of, in a six degrees of Kevin Bacon way, say I was on a podcast with the creator of my favorite comic book character. 
wait, there's a chance he might have actually listened to that entire episode. That might mean John Ashrander may have heard my letter. That's so cool. I'd love to meet him at a convention someday or maybe mail him a letter, along with my copy of Batman Chronicles number 5 and a self-addressed envelope expressing my gratitude for creating Oracle. Sorry for the mix-up in my last email. You'd said, send me your thoughts on The Killing Joke and your questions for Barbara Kiesel. So I assumed she was going to be interviewed in The Killing Joke e- episode. I'm not sure why you called Donovan a traitor. In the archives I've listened to so far, you seem to reference him as a friend. But I didn't mean to make him worry about having to answer tough questions. Episode 84 is downloading as I write this. So by the next episode, the last issue of Birds of Prey will be out. Very sad. Again. In this... In the five or six years I followed Birds of Prey, it's had three last issues when they canceled the series in 2009 at the end of the old DCU, and now this. I haven't read it since the New 52 started. I stopped following DC in protest of the New 52 fixing Oracle, something I'm sure I'll hear a lot about when I get to around BTO 50. Seriously, I only recently found out they turned Themyscira into an island of murderers and rapists. What the actual frack? BSG reference. But it's still sad news. Maybe if they bring it back, Gail Simone can return again since she's no longer on Batgirl. And then there's a winky smiley face. Lastly, since episode 84 says it's an SDCC special, I want to throw in my two cents on the Wonder Woman movie costume they revealed during the con. I know the site's focus is the Bat Family, but you liked the Wonder Woman animated movie so much, I'm sure it will come up. If you don't want to talk about it on the podcast, feel free to skip this paragraph. In general, I like it. The wedge heels are stupid, and I hope it looks more colorful in the movie, but it's a lot better than it could have been. I'd have loved it if they'd used this design, and then she sends a... uh, a picture. But I like the Doe's costume a lot more than the Man of Steel and Batflick suits, and I look forward to wearing that eagle emblem on a t-shirt. Thanks for taking the time once again to read my admittedly rather long and rambling email. Sincerely, Angela. So let's see, several things to address. First of all, no need to apologize. It was just when you said special guest. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess Donovan did think that, you know, it was for him. I, I wasn't sure who the special guest was and wondered if I had messed up, but it, it it's totally fine. I realized, as you saw in the bloopers, or heard, I guess, I totally realized what you were talking about. And I have them, and, and I put them right away in a Word document for when I interview Barbara Kiesel, which will be, I hope it will be soon. I saw her at San Diego Comic-Con, and uh, she signed my 1988 Batgirl special, and I talked to her and uh, she's still willing to have the interview so uh, that'll be coming so I've got your question so no worry about that let's see the the why do I call Donovan traitor now I don't call him a traitor but I call him uh, the betrayer basically because he betrays people <laughs> why do I do it you know the thing about me is that the the people that I'm closest to or perhaps that I like the most I I love to pick on them um, and this unfortunately happens in school a lot uh, with like the the students that I enjoy the most and I know that they'll understand my sense of humor and they'll roll with it I I pick on them the most and and sort of make fun of them in a in a kind way it sounds worse than it is but you would you would get a kick out of it um, so I I uh, in the archives yeah so he is he is one of my best friends him and Josh or he and Josh are basically probably two of my closest friends and and I love them dearly no to be honest I would never talk ill about anyone on the show because if I have a problem with you I'm probably going to sort it out as much as I can and I'm not going to be that person that 
all of a sudden decides to air grievances, which I know that in the archives I air some grievances, but I have since edited that uh, episode, and that was about uh, a situation rather than an individual. But if I didn't like Donovan, I wouldn't even be talking about him. So I promise you that even when I call him a betrayer, I, I still care for him. The reason why I call him a betrayer is he does some things accidentally that <laughs> that I say he betrays me. So, for example, obviously we don't live, well, we don't live in the same state. It may not be obvious, but I thought, like, Donovan, let's go see Edge of Tomorrow the same day around the same time, and then we can talk about it later. So I go and see it, the aforementioned same day, same time, and I, I enjoyed Edge of Tomorrow. I would recommend it. And so I'm waiting for Donovan to see it. Donovan does not see it. He doesn't see it that day. He doesn't see it the day after. He still hasn't seen it. So I call that a betrayal because I went by myself and I couldn't talk about it with him. So perhaps when it's in Redbox, he'll actually watch it. The reason why it started, he's actually the one who coined sort of this betrayal trail thing and he got it from somebody else but I have just taken it to the next level and I, I use it in everyday speech and if someone you know betrays me um, then I will let them know but you know his ultimate betrayal is just the fact that he left the Batman universe uh, comic podcast and it was just a blow um, you know it it hurt to you get to podcast with one of your friends and then they leave and you know so it was sad and so whenever I see him or hear of him emailing or whatever I just say call him the betrayer and it's funny because one of my students <laughs> picked it up now I only have two people that two students that I've trusted to listen to this show and at one point you know one of the students said did the betrayer call in meaning to the killing joke and uh, it's just funny that that has caught on so th hopefully that answers your question there Gail Simone on um, Birds of Prey potentially I don't I don't know I have no personal problem with Gail Simone and I actually want to talk about this later because there was like a comment that was brought up and I want to clear the air on this I'm just wondering how she would handle it because if if it was written like Batgirl I would be I'll be upset because obviously I've had a, a problem with the way Batgirl has been written and it's been a breath of fresh air when I go over to Birds of Prey and I like how Batgirl is written in there and she's just, I feel like she's street uh, savvy and she does have some problems but she really puts them aside and works for her team and she's a leader. So I don't know if that would happen or if everything that's been going on with Batgirl would, would come over to Birds of Prey. I'm going to talk a little bit later how there's an easy way to incorporate Huntress into the Birds of Prey if they were to, to start that over. I think it's just an awesome, you know, Suicide Squad is, it's a recipe for a more violent book, I think, and, and a darker book, but I think Birds of Prey is a recipe for just like this strong female team that may have some hijinks, but it's got fun and probably witty banter between the teammates. And I just, if, if they were to come back, I really just want a, a strong status quo because we've had so many characters leave. Poison Ivy, we left. Katana left. Starling left. You know, all of this stuff, and we've never had any consistency. And I just want a solid team that really gets to know each other and they become friends as well as teammates and really, tr you know, trust each other. And. I, I would almost, I mean, I'd love to see what Brian Q. Miller would do with a team like this. I think that would be pretty awesome. 
it would be awesome to get like Chuck Dixon back on the book or something like that. Someone and and who knows? I mean, what about the the new Batgirl creative team? What if they were to come over and do a Birds of Prey as well? So I kind of I don't know. I wish that it would be lighter and and just back to the way it was because I mean it wasn't super light. We were seeing I guess the first volume, but but I think it it did have a, a fun dimension that maybe this one doesn't necessarily have. And then yeah, the Wonder Woman costume. I think a lot of people have an issue with it. It's because of the way they just like Photoshop the heck out of it. I mean, it's the the color palette is so saturated. I or maybe it's not saturated. Um, just the way that everything is really turned down, low tones and everything. And I think people have a problem with it. But when I look at the image, just seeing Wonder Woman, I see Wonder Woman. So I'm happy with it. I I think we need to obviously the it's just a tease. I mean everything we've seen of the the new Batman outfit has been a tease. They had the cowl and the cape in the DC booth, but you don't. I mean that doesn't really give you a sense of anything because it's in in the whole outfit. So it's just hard. I mean she's so far away. They they don't want to show those details. But I think you know a lot of people had problems seeing the the Superman costume for Man of Steel when it first came out. So right now, I mean, I, I think it looks good. I'm I'm just cautiously optimistic about the entire movie and how they're actually going to use Wonder Woman. So those are my scents right there. But we actually don't talk about that on the San Diego Comic-Con uh, special. It's more just the interviews, which... Angela writes back and, and she says, So this is what I get for writing an email before listening to the latest episode. I thought from the episode title that BTO84 would be a review of the general San Diego Comic-Con news. I never imagined you'd actually been to the con and gotten a bunch of awesome interviews. What a good episode. I'm definitely excited for Lego Batman 3 and the Gotham TV show now. But since my assumption that you'd talk about the new Wonder Woman costume was completely wrong, feel free to just ignore my comments on it in the email I sent yesterday. No need to bring it up the next BTO episode if you weren't already going to to discuss it thanks Angela too late Angela already discussed it so uh, <laughs> thanks for writing in twice and no worries about that yeah I love going to San Diego comic-con tiring somewhat stressful uh, this year I think was less stressful than the previous year because things were better in order I had a better sense and a better confidence at interviewing people unfortunately I got really sick on Friday and I just like could hardly sit and like wait in a panel as a panel is going on and then you know finally I was able to to up chalk if you will and and you know when I knew it was going to happen of course there's a line to go to the ladies restroom so I ended up throwing up in a uh, in a trash can in the in the middle of the the hallway and uh, it's interesting because number one it's kind of lucky that you know really wherever you go it people are doing their own thing there are so many people no one paid attention to you so I actually wasn't as embarrassed as I thought it would be and number two after doing that you feel pretty bold and so a couple of things that I did after that and I did feel a little better better after that and, and Saturday I felt much better 
like I Friday after that I also like slept in the hall for 40 minutes before I had to interview Mark and Draco but uh, after that yeah you feel bold so I actually walked up to Brian Michael Bendis when there were like security people around and I said you know I said Mr. Bendis I'm really liking what you're doing with X-Men and, and got a picture with him so there's one thing and another thing was the the Gotham press event that we got invited to was right after the Flash one that we weren't invited to and I just walked in the Flash one like I owned the place and took some pictures so you know you just kind of get bold and and you you roll with everything and and I think you know my cohorts will say that they loved talking to Adam West and and I I certainly agree that that was that was awesome but but I still say my top moment was talking to those creators of the the new creators of Batgirl so it just ease my fears and um if there were any but I'm just super pumped for it and I really hope that I can get something scheduled October after that first issue drops to just talk with Babsar, um Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher and just about that first issue so that was just the the best um part of the con for me from Gelu or G look he put G that's awesome I had a student named G he would come in every day and he would rap a little bit for me the same rap all the time he says hi Stella I'm glad to see you've made it through the killing joke I saw the Lego Batman 3 pictures for Batgirl Batman Robin and Alfred in their 1960s forms hopefully we can get a Batgirl action figure based off her 1960s appearance one question what do you think of the new Batgirl costume the new creative team has shown great question thank you it's different you know I, I I think that's certainly one way to do it it's different and it's fun I think it's sleek I think that it, it's it's a way to really show off the fact that she is it, you know kind of younger it seems younger in spirit the fact that it's leather it makes it different I think than what we've seen it before I love that they kept a similar color palette to what we've seen before I, I talked to Babs Tar, you know, for a decent amount of time just about kind of the designing and everything. And she had been used to, to working with leather and, and everything like that. And, and, and I have to say that I, I think it's just an awesome direction to go to. And I know that part of the story is just her actually collecting the pieces and creating her own costume. And I think some people may be out there that will critique that. But I think that's an awesome idea. Because it's really her, it, especially like in, in Batgirl Year One, if you think about that, that, you know, she's buying all the equipment by herself until Batman gave it to her. But her making her own costume and finding the equipment really makes her own her costume and own being Batgirl. And I think if we're going to start over and have this really awesome Barbara Gordon what better way to do it than her kind of shedding that old skin and coming to into a new skin and coming into a new character so I I really like it and and I feel like some people have complained about like what's going on with some of this stuff like the buttons and everything uh, attaching the cape which actually I mean if you think about it if she is in a really bad situation in the past the cape is always attached so how is she able to get rid of it so I feel like it'd be awesome like if the cape caught on fire which hopefully she would have a cape that would not catch on fire but even if it did she'd be able to detach it whereas in the past she wouldn't be able to or if a perp grabbed on I always think of the Incredibles the the reason why you shouldn't have capes right Uh, and then uh, the designer goes for all those reasons so there may be I I think there was like an uprising of a bunch of people who said 
like what's with this but then think of all the fan art i mean fan art has been dropping like every day so i think it's i think it's great and and um you know anything that's new and and different i think we're going to be a little a little nervous about but until we see it on the page and, and in action, um, you know, when that happens, I think we're going to be pretty excited about it. You know, this uh, this email actually reminds me of a blog post that I found talking about <laughs> Barbara Gordon's breast size. And uh, it says, giving Babs a breast reduction and overall de-aging by about 10 years to, in the style to me is a poor move. They want to make a young hip book, but it has nothing to do with the character. As for breasts, I just take it as another bit of the old big boobs equals bad misguided hypocrisy silliness, her having a smaller frame being artistic shorthand for her being young and sweet or something. I have a problem with any, you know, and, and, and Michael Bailey has been on a couple times, and I think he always says that Babs Gordon needs to be like a B cup, right? She's very normal, and, and I don't think, I mean, I don't think they're deflated. Uh, that seems like a, a bit harsh, but I think the fact that if she may be smaller, which definitely I think she is smaller than like the current Barbara Gordon, I think it just like relieves tension off of like the the outfit it it gets rid of it doesn't sexualize her basically and and that's something that I really like because as I've said I don't think that Barbara Gordon is a sexual character yes she may have sex but I don't think she should be sexed up and and even on Twitter I said net like she should never be very busty she's one of the more reasonable characters of the DCU she's not power girl there may be some people that are meant to be that way but Barbara Gordon should not be that way and I have no problem with the bus size that they're currently designing her and I I think it it just fits with the overall design so I I completely disagree with all of that from Adam Rogers. He's got a long email. He says, hello there, Stella, and congratulations on making it to this milestone for Barbara, although I can guess that you might consider her become Oracle, becoming Oracle a bigger milestone, but still. I missed the call-in show, but I'd still like to give my thoughts on it and point out something from the Wheel of Backrolls. I apologize in advance for the long email. When I first read The Killing Joke a few years ago, I don't remember exactly when, I didn't understand it as much as I do now, mostly thanks to hearing you and Don discuss it. I really wasn't a fan of Joker's origin story because I'm a big fan of leaving that part of his life ambiguous. I don't know that Joker even remembers it clearly anymore. It still bothers me when people pay too much reverence to it and claim it as his definitive origin. It just takes something away from him if we know that much about his past, you know? But now, after revisiting Mad Love and reading the comic for the first time and hearing your thoughts on it in The Killing Joke, I now like this origin. Now, that being said, I still don't buy into it. I don't believe it or take it as a truth for a second. I can just see Joker telling not only the reader, but even Harley Quinzel this story for the very reason you said you didn't like it, because he's trying to get you to sympathize with him. This is just one of the many stories he has made up over the years about his so-called origins. As for the joke at the end of Batman sharing a laugh with the Joker at the end, when I first read the story, I barely understood the joke at all or how it related to Joker and Batman for that matter. I understood the surface punchline about the inmate not trusting the other inmate, but I never thought about how it related to Batman and the Joker's relationship. Yes, it's true that the Joker doesn't trust Batman enough to allow him to rehabilitate him, but one thing you and Don failed to mention that I thought of when I first read the book is that both inmates are crazy for believing that a beam of light could actually support a person's weight. 
Even if he did trust the other inmate and try to cross the gap on the beam of light, he would still have fallen to his death. I think that's cool because the rehabilitation that Batman is offering Joker is just as insubstantial as that beam of light. No matter how hard you try, the Joker simply can't be rehabilitated. In The Dark Knight Returns, we saw that Joker is practically comatose after Batman's disappearance up until he resurfaced. Even without the existence of Batman, he still could be cured of his insanity. I believe that that is the reason why Batman laughs. As for the art, that never crossed my mind. Yes, that beam of light is in the water puddle, but it's also forming a line between the two of them. In the final panel, the beam of light is gone, but so are their feet. I think this means the offer is now off the table. And I'm not even sure Batman is necessarily sharing a laugh with Joker, so much as cracking a bit at the realization that both he and the Joker are crazy. And I also think Batman is only laughing in that one panel. They're both crazy. Joker is too crazy to trust that Batman isn't trying to trick him, and it's crazy for Batman to think that Joker is capable of being cured. That's what I love about that ending. Much like the ending of Inception, it's left open to interpretation. I do think that Batman killing the Joker is a valid interpretation. I don't usually particularly care for that type of ending in story because I want to know what happened. But in this case, we know that in continuity at least, Batman did not kill the Joker for the simple reason that the character continued to appear in comics. So in this case, I actually find it very clever. As for whether it's in character for Batman to want to cure the Joker, sure. I understand where you're coming from, Stella, but I think he wants to help everyone in Gotham City. Much in the same way that Joker wants to prove that one bad day can turn any man insane, Batman wants to prove that anyone can be saved, at least until the end of the story when, I believe, he learns that the Joker is beyond help. In short, I think this is the point in Batman's career where he realizes that Joker is the one person who doesn't deserve to be helped. Up to this point, the Joker hasn't been all that big of a threat. Much in the way that this story was trying to hype up the Joker and make him more of a threat, this is also the point where Batman finally realizes that. As for whether the nudity and level of violence was necessary, I think that, at least in the Joker's mind, it most definitely is. I mean, that's the ultimate form of humiliation, especially when turned back on her father. I don't think it's going too far. I mean, don't get me wrong, that's the whole point of the story, that the Joker is taking things too far, but that's his point. I really don't believe that simply shooting his daughter and leaving him to wonder if she got help or simply bled out and died and chaining him up like an animal would be anywhere close enough to drive Jim Gordon insane. Not even close. Come on, he's a cop. Some chains being treated like a freak isn't enough. He wouldn't shrug at that. Sure, seeing his daughter shot and bleeding on the floor and not knowing what happened to her certainly shakes him, but I still don't think that stands a chance of driving him insane. If you really want to have a reasonable chance at that, then you really need to go all the way and humiliate him completely by robbing him of his clothes and common decency and making all that even worse by showing him that he has done the same to his daughter. Without that, Gordon would just nervously laugh, have laughed the whole thing off and waited for Batman to show up and bring in the Joker. But I do love that. Even after all of this, he still wants Batman to bring him in by the book. It truly does speak volumes about his character. As for... The subject of sexual assault, I'd like to start off by saying that I do not believe that Joker is asexual or that he has never had sex, especially with Harley. I believe he most certainly does. Now that being said, I don't think that defines him in any way. I don't think his crimes are driven by any of that. I don't think he meant anything sexual by it when he stripped Barbara and photographed her. Sure, it may have given him a bit of pleasure, but I don't think that was the point. 
The point was to drive her father insane. He simply didn't care about her. And I do agree that what he did to her, and had the circus freaks do to her father for that matter, no need to be sexist, was definitely sexual assault, no doubt about it, but I firmly believe that he didn't rape her. Again, that wasn't the point. He didn't need to. By showing her father those photos, he had to have considered that possibility. Whether Joker raped her or not, Jim Gordon would almost certainly have to wonder about it, much as we do ourselves. Now that being said, there were two goons slash henchmen in the hallway behind Joker. I still firmly believe that Joker did not rape her, but I find it hard to say as much for his men. Granted, he may have ordered them not to, but much as showing the photos to her father is ambiguous, this is as well. I apologize for putting you through this paragraph. I know it was probably hard for you to read, but I just had to get it off my chest. Please don't hate me. On a side note, I really like Commissioner Gordon's dialogue while the freaks are removing his clothes. He tells them that they can't do that, and I can relate to that. And as for Batman leaving the crumpled Joker card in Barbara's lap, I understand your feelings on that and think that while you do have a very interesting point, I never saw it that way, not by a long shot. I don't remember what I thought about the first time I read it. I probably just didn't understand the subtlety of it, but now that I have a better understanding of Batman as a character, I think that it means something else entirely. To me, he's expressing deep pain at what has happened and in seeing just how horrible the Joker is. It speaks volumes to me. I find it perfectly valid that he would have a Joker card on his person, especially within the context of the story, especially since we see him playing with the deck of cards in the Bat Cave earlier in the story. In both instances, he's contemplating the Joker and what to do about him. When he crumples the card in his mind, he's probably doing that to the Joker himself. And by leaving it in Barbara's lap, assuming she even sees it or knows who placed it there, well... She can see it. I mean, you gotta see where it is. She was very much focused on Batman and her father's safety. Granted, she might have seen it after Batman left, unless she fell asleep again. She was clearly in a lot of physical pain and had to have lost a lot of blood. That sends a message to her that he understands her pain and that he is, at the very least, very angry with the Joker now. Granted, you're probably right that seeing a Joker card in her lap near her bullet wound probably would give her a bit of a shock, but she, much like her father, is of stronger stock than that. I think that, after recovering from the initial shock of seeing Joker's face in that spot, I have to believe she would understand the meaning of it. And I have to point out that in the Wheel of Backrolls, you all got the first Barbara question wrong. Don asks how many different animated features there are in which Tara Strong has voiced Batgirl. The answer was, one, Batman the Animated Series, counting both art styles as one show, is certainly fair. I agree with that. Two, Mystery of the Batwoman. Three, Gotham Girls. Four, Batman Beyond. And five, Super Best Friends Forever. I immediately saw this as a trick question for the simple reason that she is currently voicing Barbara Gordon in Beware the Batman and has not, as of yet, become Batgirl. Although, I'm starting to think she might just go straight to Batgirl. We can talk about that more after the next episode of Beware the Batman that airs Sunday. Please, that show has gotten, like, the worst side of the stick ever and I don't know if it's going to come back which is very disappointing Anyway, I have to point out that you all forgot about Batman Sub-Zero. She definitely appears as Batgirl in the opening scene of that movie, so that answer should have been 6 rather than 5, and 12 instead of 10 for the second question. At least Josh pointed out Sub-Zero, and you mentioned the Batman as much as I'd love to forget that abomination. What? It's not bad. And yes, I did give it a chance, but Don didn't count either of them. Crap, I'm turning into douchey McNitpick from the Nostalgia Critics movie review series. At any rate, thanks for all the years of podcasting. I've been following you since you appeared on the Spider-Man Crawl Space podcast. 
Oh, and for being such a great source of background Barbara Gordon information, I can't wait to hear about how she became Oracle and all of her other exploits over the next few years. Fly on Babs Lover, Adam Rogers, the Cossum Taylor. P.S. I ship Babs and Dick myself. I just don't understand why they can't get together. They're clearly meant for each other. It just doesn't make sense. I don't do much shipping, but these two, well, I guess Peter and MJ are in a similar situation now as well. Thanks to OMD and Omit, aren't they? Oh. Yes, OMD one, one more day and omit one moment in time if you're a Spider-Man fan as I am, but I don't current, read the current stuff. I'm all in the classics right now. And then he says, PPS, if you like Batgirl's new look coming in Batgirl 35, you should follow a cosplayer slash costume maker, as in she runs a business making costumes for people, called God Save the Queen Fashions. Well, I guess that's the name of her business, but whatever. Who's working on a Batgirl costume of the new design and the one from Gail Simone's run. She makes very high-quality costumes and specializes in leather. So you can believe that she's going to be, be making a really awesome cosplay. You can find her on Facebook at facebook.com slash GSTQ because of God Save the Queen fashions. She posts frequent updates on all of her projects there. Well, Adam, thank you so much for just the in-depth email that you sent. Um, I'm sorry that you, you couldn't send it in at the show, but it's great that you were able to do it after because you're able to comment on the things that, that Don and I were talking about. So I am appreciative of that. Great insight and, and adding another dimension. And about the wheel back rolls, you know, I was hoping that someone would write in and redeem me. So thank you for writing in and, and throwing in some corrections. And hopefully I'll get some more points back potentially. But I guess we were all wrong. So the question has to be thrown out. So that's interesting. If you think about it, because then the number, it was originally 10, it goes down to 9, and then all of this stuff. So just people keep writing in so my point, my score can go up. That would be great. Just redeem me. Redeem me. Adam writes in again, and he says that I forgot to address the points you brought up about comparing Batman's reaction in The Killing Joke to his reaction to A Death in the Family. To me, it does make sense that Batman would have a stronger reaction to Jason's death and Barbara's assault for a few reasons. For one thing, up to that point at least, he had very limited interactions with her. She was never really his partner the way any of the Robins were. He didn't raise her like he did the Robins. She was a friend but not a son. Also, I think he would react a bit more strongly to a person's death than a crippling. At least she can be helped. And I do think he was broken up about what Joker did to Babs. Obviously not as much as the death of someone he raised, but still. And the reason why he has a much more violent reaction to Jason's death is because of what happened to Barbara. The combined pain is what makes his shell shatter instead of the way it simply cracked in the hospital scene with Babs. As I said before, the crumpling of the Joker card is the symbol of his pain and hatred for the Joker. I think it was carrying it around because he still wanted to help the Joker. Dropping it in Barbara's lap signifies that at least a part of him was letting go after witnessing the horrors Joker is capable of. Obviously, he still had to try one more time before Joker points out how crazy it is to think that the Joker is even capable of being helped. Add to all that the guilt Batman felt, and rightfully so, at being careless with how he trained and raised Jason. That would have to hit him harder than what happened to Barbara. You can't really blame him for what happened to Barbara, but with Jason, it's different. I don't really think that was his fault, but I can't see how he could avoid feeling that way. Sorry for my rants. I hope you enjoy them, whether or not you agree with them. Yeah, I, I certainly get that. I guess it's just my love of, of Babs that I wish he had a bigger reaction to it all. But I certainly get um, the fact that, yeah, it's family and, and he's raised them and been in closer proximity to Jason for all of that time. So 
I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Well, that's it for comments and questions. Thanks for all the, I think that's probably the most that anyone has uh, ever written in for, you know, one episode or so. So with the, the changeover with the Batman universe, unfortunately, I lost some comments that were, were posted on episode 81. And this was the episode that I had given right reasons or basically like what needed to happen to, to clean up the the current Batgirl run and then oddly like that week or within seven days they announced a new creative team and I do remember that at one point someone wrote in and posted their name as Gail Simone so it's probably the same person who posted as Dan DiDio and you know said well 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 so you got your wish and things like that and and um so I I do want to clear the air because I I think some people uh, may think that I'm I'm very harsh on Gail Simone, and I do want to say that you know whenever I, I talk about it, I I hope you guys understand that I'm not attacking the character of Gail Simone. It's never you know a personal attack. It's just that I I do not like the current writing. So it's always me going after the writing of Batgirl. It's never the person of Gail Simone. I don't know Gail Simone personally, and. You know, she could be a very awesome person. I'm sure she's a very nice person. I don't know her, so why would I attack her? It's just her writing on Batgirl, it was below par for me, and it was pulling down the character. And I know that Gil Simone has the potential to be an awesome writer because we've seen it in the past. She had done great things in Birds of Prey Volume 1. I know that people really liked... Uh, what she had done with Secret Six. I know that people really liked what she had done with Wonder Woman. I think it was, and I, I had said this in a previous episode, the fact that, and I, that was defending her too, the fact that I felt that something was going on behind the scenes with editorial and that there were a lot of mandates that she was told what to do and, and this is what happened to poor Barbara Gordon. So I just want you to know that you know, I, I strive to, to give you my true and honest opinion about books. I hope I, I, I feel like I'm a more positive person than, than there are around in the podcasting community. If there's a book I like, just because I don't like the Batgirl book in general, if there's a particular issue, I'm not going to hate it just for hating it. Uh, there are a couple that, you know, I gave good grades on because they were actually good. So I, I have no vendetta. It's just I don't like, you know, how how Batgirl had been going. Brian Q. Miller, I'm a huge fan of him, and I've met him. He's, he's, a, he's a very nice man. If he had written a bad book, I would have said, and, and I don't think, I gave a couple 10 out of 10s on that, but please go back. I did not always give a 10 out of 10. I still critique that there. So I just want to clear the air on that, that I am never attacking the character of Gail Simone. I am only going after the writing. That is it. Okay. So who knows? Gail Simone may write this. And, you know, if anything came across as, as me offending you, I, I do deeply apologize because that was never my intention. Always going after the writing because this is a beloved character for me. And I just felt like she was mishandled and, and I tried to give away of, of what needed to happen. So asking for, for Gail Simone to, to be off the book is not because of her personally, but because I felt like the writing was dragging down the character and it needed a, a breath of fresh air. So 
that's just me defending myself and, and the things that I say, and I apologize if I offended anyone. Well, let's actually get into some reviews, shall we? So first up and really only up for this vintage side and a very big moment is Batman Chronicles number 5, Oracle Year 1, Born of Hope. And the cover date is June 1996, so a little out of publication continuity or sequence as I do it, but since it comes in the correct sequence and how it happens, I figured I, I should do this, uh, just said it as it was mentioned to me during the Killing Joke special. So here it is. So writers John Ostrander and Kim Yale, penciler Brian Selfries, inker Carl Story, and colorist Mark Chiarello. Also included in this particular issue are Decoys featuring Jim Gordon and Of Mice and Men featuring Alfred and a young Bruce Wayne. So the opening quote from Eli Wiesel, who wrote Night, and he was uh, a Jew who was actually in a concentration camp and, and witnessed all that and experienced all that, he says, Just as despair can come to one only from other human beings, hope, too, can be given to one only by other human beings. The story opens with Bab still in her hospital bed after being shot by the Joker, dreaming and wondering how she could have been so stupid. She has a police commissioner for an adoptive father. She lived in Gotham City most of her life. She ran one of the largest libraries on the East Coast, and she was Batgirl. So why did she open the door to the apartment without even looking? She wakes up suddenly, and Batman is inside her room. Bab says that the doctors told her she was lucky. The Joker doctored the bullet with half the grains of a normal forty-five, which basically saved her life. She's upset that she has no worth. All of the stuff done to her and her father was just a way to get at Batman, and she finds her lack of importance humiliating. After Batman says he caught the Joker, Babs tells him that she heard they laughed over some private joke, and she asks if that joke was her. Batman leaves, and she hopes she heard him. Ten weeks and three days after being shot, she was able to go home, and the media are there to see it. We then see Babs as she begins to see the struggles she is about to face, which were normal parts of her life while she walked. She has a difficult time getting into a car in front of the media circus, but she finally makes it. Later in the car, she talks to her father about the fact that he refused police guarding their home to symbolize an open administration, and unfortunately, she got hurt because of it. She begins six months in the shadows, getting used to not walking again, undergoing PT, and feeling helpless and useless. She was getting tired of being a victim and decided to use the skills and abilities she had long before being Batgirl. With a grant from the Wayne Foundation, she sets up shop in her bedroom and puts together a, a powerful computer and pretty much as powerful as possible. She knew research and she was able to tap into the internet before it was big and get to know the community of people involved. She felt freedom and acceptance. Then one night, Gordon comes home after a frustrating day and tells Babs about Ashley Mavis Powell, who's laundering money, but the police don't know how. Babs does some research and learns that Powell is a metahuman known as Interface, who can interact directly with computers. Babs begins to go out more, but the streets feel different to her, and she no longer feels like a gymnast who knows her body. She's waiting to cross an intersection at one point, and Powell comes up behind her and tells her to stay out of her affairs, and actually throws Babs into the street in oncoming traffic. Babs survives, I don't know how that happens, and Powell will, of course, regret her actions. 
Babs looks for resources to teach her self-defense apart from Batman and her father, and Matches Malone, of all people, sets up a meeting with Richard Dragon, with whom Babs meets in a park. Richard wants to know what she wants and who she is, but she says she doesn't know anymore, and perhaps she never knew, and now they can begin. He teaches her the Philippine art of stick fighting called Eskrima. The new identity of Oracle actually came to her in a dream where she as Batgirl finds herself in Delphi in front of the Oracle there, who tells her that she has lost nothing that matters and she has everything she needs. They both remove their masks and then we see that the Oracle is actually Barbara. She immediately begins using this new identity and three weeks later she goes after Interface, baiting her into connecting to the internet to find Oracle, but Oracle sets up a logic trap which repeats over and over and thus ensnares Interface before Oracle can let go. Oracle calls and lets her know that she can trigger the trap anytime she wants now because it is inside her mind unless she does what she's told. Later, Gordon returns home and says that Powell has actually turned herself in. Babs goes to see Richard Dragon for her training. She tells him she has found the start of the answer to her question, and Dragon tells her he is no longer needed. And so, a little over a year since her old life ended, since she was reborn, she now embraces her life and the light with joy. Well, a pretty powerful issue, let me just say to, to start off. I love just in the beginning, and really, and I'll talk about this at the end, but I love how this issue goes through several stages of Barbara's life and almost grief, if you can think about it that way, and just gaining acceptance and everything and, and moving on and not feeling like a victim anymore. So just a well-done issue. I like where we start out with Babs reflecting on everything and accusing herself of fault with the whole thing, given how competent she is and just how did that actually happen. I, I find it interesting, especially in light of what John Ostrander had, uh, had told us during that call-in special, the fact that Barbara should not have lived through that. And so in a way, he puts that into that narrative and explains how she survived and the fact that the Joker basically doctored a 45 bullet and because it wasn't as powerful as it should have been you know she's able to survive that that shot i'm glad she gave batman what for for his part in, in the whole thing yeah you know i've complained about babs being somewhat whiny in the past but i think given the situation it's completely due that she, you know, say it all happened for Batman's sake and, and how tragic it is that, that she just feels worthless because of it. Babs accuses Batman of laughing with the Joker and, you know, I do wonder how she found out. Was it her father? And it's a little strange to think that's true because, you know, he was elsewhere and, and I think pretty um, incapacitated at that time. So perhaps it was the cops that, that came and, and picked Joker up. But, you know, she asks whether it was about her, and, and I think that he really does deserve her anger and lashing out, given how inappropriate the whole thing was. And again, completely in character with her, with what happened. So, I, I think that was a good scene, and I was certainly applauding her yelling at Batman. I like the full page of Bab struggling to get into the car. I think it really shows how real it is. I, uh, I love the scene with Jim and Babs in the car. It's very moving as well and certainly honest. And uh, I'm glad that Ostrander and Yale decided to address the weird fact that Joker found the Gordon residence with no resistance. Because, again, I have that problem. And here we see how were they able 
how was that gang able to to infiltrate it um, with no police around there at all? If you look up to where um, there's a page where we see Baz looking out of a window, and right in front you see Kiwi running shoes. Uh, a sign in front of her apartment and uh, very ironic I would say just the fact that obviously Babs will never run again or necessarily have need for running shoes and then Babs starts to move on and, and get stronger with her body and her mind understanding that she is still worth something and I love this because it very much almost reflects difficult times that she has had in the past when she has lost her congressional seat and, and things like that because those times she's also felt worthless and, and very weak and not knowing what to do and then realizing that she's capable of doing so much more she had so many skills she's not just bad girl she's not just a congresswoman so I, I just love that I like how she talks about the internet being a community and uh, her freedom using that world so really getting into her connection with computers which is something that we haven't really seen before she gets a taste of her first adversary in this world which I think is is just great that this origin is not only her origin as Oracle but does she have what it takes to take on somebody from this new world and you know what is the the type of bad guy she's going to be encountering she does her legwork, she gets in trouble. And let's be honest, you know, how did she not get killed by that car? Because, I don't know, she's in the air, and you see the car stops, but I just feel like it would almost be too late, because Mavis uh, certainly seems to just throw, well, I should say Pal, because Mavis is her middle name, but Pal just seems to throw Babs in the street at the exact right moment. But luckily, she does survive, and that's good because then I wouldn't be talking about this issue uh, she sees her weakness and she strives to overcome it without the help of Batman or her father but it's rather funny that well Batman's the one that ends up helping her out uh, because you know I think he he does feel responsible he feels bad for her and and you can see that he cares and his dark and brooding manner I like that this training comes from an unlikely guy who's wise. I don't know too much about Richard Dragon, and of course I said that I was going to change uh, when I said that. I was actually going to do some research. He used to be a thief who was trained in martial arts, and then he decided to use his abilities for good. And he's considered one of the, the top martial artists in the DC Universe, along with Batman, Bronze, Tiger, and Lady Shiva. He's trained the Question, Oracle, Huntress, shortly after Oracle, Renee Montoya, and even Lady Shiva. And we've actually seen somebody identify himself as Richard Dragon in Green Arrow number 23 in the New 52. Uh, I actually don't read that, but this is just what my, my research gives me. So it seems like he's certainly a character that's got his fingers in a bunch of pies and he's able to train many people. But it's just interesting that he looks like some sort of hobo guy that's sitting against a tree in a park. I think he's even next to another homeless person. And, and then, you know, he's just super wise and knowledgeable. I feel like not, not only in the physical aspects of whatever art he's training, but also in the spiritual as well. I liked the vision that Babs had, and uh, it, it really reminded me of Luke Skywalker running after Darth Vader on Dagobah, and, and then when like he's able to defeat him it turns out that inside Darth Vader's mask was actually Luke Skywalker so just Babs learning a lot about herself and then and then using that as a way to realize that 
Her new name should be Oracle. I like how the Batgirl doll, which we have seen in the past, and I assume that it's it's the one that we have seen with Secret Origins and the Batgirl special in 1988. But this doll pops up in crucial moments in the story, and it almost reminds me of Sons of Anarchy when we actually see this one homeless woman who's very much like a almost seems like a very supernatural element that she may not really be there but she pops up in very crucial moments uh, when Jax or somebody has to make a big decision so she just yeah this doll pops up and you, you see her at the very beginning with her altercation with Batman and then after her oracle vision you see her pop up and and I think that's just keeping her connection to Batgirl but also and you know remembering the past but also moving on to the future and then we really see Bab smart and ferocious as she goes after Interface. And it ends so well with a nice family moment. Babs graduates from the school of Richard Dragon. And, and just having the confidence to roll uh, you know, on the streets again. Because she was just, it was so out, she felt so out of her element going back and, and being on the streets that she felt she knew. But she didn't anymore. So, I mean, all of those are likes. I, I, I really loved this issue. The one thing that I had a problem with is just the art. Uh, I didn't really enjoy it as much. Um, Babs's hair is not really red. It's more like brown, but that's just a, you know, a little nitpick. There is, you know, the, the second page, a, a weird white object coming out of Joker's pistol. And I really, like, stared at it for a long time to try to figure out what it was. And, and I wondered well is it like smoke but in like an abstract form or is it showing motion of the pistol I really wasn't sure so if any of you have any idea what that white image or uh, object is please let me know there are good character moments I think with drawings and bad ones just you know in the oracle like interaction with herself just weird line placements to to make the face distinguished and so just an interesting artist that that overall I didn't enjoy as much so that would be my only negative and because of that I give this whole issue a 9 out of 10 I just think that this was a great portrayal of Babs and we really see and understand her trials as she goes from a victim who sees herself as useless and weak she gets on with the day-to-day -day, she makes mistakes then realizing that she's better than that and, and really pursuing the life and path that she deserves and that she's known for a long time but in a different way she trains and she becomes a different type of hero and she gets the bad guy in the end and this is just such a beautiful and strong start to her character so nine out of ten bats next up and I just have two that she's appeared in so in sequence she actually would appear in as Oracle or at least as Batgirl in a wheelchair in Batman number 428 which was a death in the family part three of four writer Jim Starlin, penciler Jim Aparo, inker Mike DiCarlo, colorist Adrian Roy and what is Babs doing this issue? Well we only see her in one panel and she's at Jason's funeral, spoiler, uh, in her wheelchair along with Bruce, James Gordon and Alfred. And then finally, this is actually out of sequence and out of continuity, but my friend Josh Bertoni told me that I missed an appearance of Barbara Gordon in the Untold Legend of the Batman number three. Stories called The Man Behind the Mask, writer Len Wayne, artist Jim Apparel, colorist Glennis Wayne. 
Babs appears as Gordon reminisces on his relationship with Batman from his first meeting to his obsession with stopping him to their unlikely partnership and friendship. He looks down at a picture of Babs signed when she was a congresswoman and thinks back to how she was a teenager when she first set eyes on Batman when he was in Jim's study one night and of course she fell madly in love with him. When she wasn't hating the book, she was training hard, graduated summa cum laude from Gotham State with a PhD in library science and a brown belt in martial arts, and she became Gotham's chief librarian. While her adolescent feelings for Batman had long since been forgotten, she, they left a mark as he reflects back to the policeman's masquerade ball, where she dresses up as Batgirl to shock her dad, but on her way to the ball, she saw Bruce Wayne was being kidnapped by Killer Moth and his gang, and she went to the rescue. And she hasn't stopped putting her neck on the line ever since. And then Robin interrupts his thoughts, saying that her putting her neck on the line uh, is certainly an understatement, and then the main story continues. So this obviously happens at the point where Jim knows that Barbara is, in fact, Batgirl, and very interesting to see him reflect not only on his history, but his daughter's history. I have a problem with the writer saying that she saw Batman and then she fell madly in love with him, and, and I just feel like there, she may have been enamored with him, but I don't think it was romantic sentiment at all I very much feel like because she had such deep regard already for her father that this was something she saw in Batman and she saw Batman as a way that that she could make her father proud potentially and and uh, use her skills for the good of of others so I, I think it's just more of a burgeoning respect and desire to to be like him but not love i think that's a little bizarre but at least you know it's only mentioned once and then it's forgot about and then you know when she goes and, and does her own thing it's not really talked about anymore but i just have a problem with anyone saying that barbara gordon fell in love with uh batman because I, I i just don't think there were romantic sentiments involved in it at all so hopefully that's the only one i i, I know that i've forgotten things in the past and skipped ones where she's only been in a, a panel or so but i think i've man i i feel like i've covered everything with barbara gordon as batgirl in time in sequence at least in date sequence and publication sequence so well, that's it. So when I come back, I will review Batgirl 33 and Birds of Prey 33. And now Zeiss's Radio Hour featuring Anne Berlin, uh, who is actually my favorite band, and the song To the Wolves.
You know, it's kind of funny. We're in August, and of course, I record a, a month behind, at least with the modern books. But if you think about it, we're kind of wrapping down in both of these respective runs because you have Backworld 34, which has already come out, of course. You have The Future's End, and then starting in October, you've got the new creative team, which is just really exciting. And then, unfortunately, Birds of Prey is going to end. We'll have Birds of Prey 34, which will tie up, I guess, whatever is going to tie up, and then Future's End, and then it's done uh, until we either see another form of Birds of Prey or something else comes out tentatively because I mean there's going to be a gap right I'll continue to review Batgirl but there won't be another issue to go along with it and and right now I'm sort of thinking what could I what could I review and I was thinking maybe Batman Adventures that were coming out uh, basically to to tie into the animated series and I mean I could do that, uh, and, and that's certainly something I've been considering, but I'll actually come upon those issues as I'm going through, you know, her, her run as Oracle, and of course she'd be Batgirl in them, and she doesn't appear in too many of them, I think, you know, an okay amount, but what about Gotham Academy, and, and of course Gotham Academy has Brendan Fletcher on as one of the co-writers, and he's one of the co-writers of Batgirl as well, and I mean it doesn't necessarily like fit into the whole Batgirl situation, but I just wonder, it seems like it could potentially be a fun title to, to try out, and, and you know that I've tried out things in the past and maybe they didn't work as well like world's finest wasn't really enjoying that as much so i dropped it so maybe i'll give it a shot for the first few issues and, and review that and then just go from there but right now i'm kind of leaning towards that but batman adventures is always an option well until we actually get to that we do have some actual comics to go over right now and first up we have Batgirl 33 Enemies and Allies writer Gail Simone, penciler Fernando Pissarin, inkers Jonathan Glapion and Matt Ryan and colorist Blonde while discussing what to do about the threat of nightfall and the disgrace, Batgirl and Black Canary were interrupted by a third vigilante wearing the same colors that Nightfall wears. And now, Batgirl makes the perhaps hasty decision to attack the newcomer based on suspicion alone. She'd rather take the chance and apologize later than be caught off guard. Dinah grabs Barbara from behind during a vicious attack that Barbara made, warning that this woman's obviously not with Nightfall because, well, she's not fighting back. Bab stops and offers a hanky for the blood and an apology to the woman who calls herself the Huntress. She explains that she cares about Gotham City and to that end she is offering her help in cleaning it up. 
Batgirl suggests that she'll trust Huntress if she reveals her identity, which is totally a Batman move right there. Dinah steps in between them and urges Batgirl to give Huntress a chance without that inconvenience, and reluctantly, Batgirl agrees. Finally, Batgirl explains that the problem with fighting Nightfall's control over Gotham is that every time they take down one of her cells, she moves the rest of her gang elsewhere without leaving a trace. However, Nightfall has lieutenants in the disgrace, and she believes that they can be exploited to get the upper hand in the battle. She has a lead on one of them, but using that lead may come at a cost. And we actually see this as later that night, Babs returns home to her apartment, and she wakes up her roommate the, the ever-popular Alicia from her sleep. Alicia accepts Barbara's gift of biscotti. It's always about the baked goods. Making small talk about her girlfriend, Joe, which we all know how I feel about her. And saying that, well, Babs' father called from prison. There's a nice little editorial note to talk about Eternal. But Babs shifts the subject away from, obviously, that problem. And... She admits that she needs to know who offered Alicia and her friends a job of sabotaging the Carter Resnick Foundation building, which we saw partly in the annual and partly in 31, I believe it was. But she can't explain why, of course. Alicia comments that she already knows why. Barbara is some kind of undercover cop. Rather than dissuade her or admit the truth, Babs embraces the convenient alibi and presses Alicia for the name, and Alicia responds that her contact was, in fact, named Michael, and we know his him as Bleak Michael. Nightfall, meanwhile, is planning an attack on the citizens of Gotham that will wipe out all the bad people, and she has set the deadline for 16 hours. To that end, she has called in several operatives. Bleak Michael, in preparation for that deadline, heads home and encounters Batgirl and her companions waiting for him in the parking garage. Unfortunately, he's more powerful than they expect, but Huntress tackles him from behind, smashing him through the windshield of a parked car. The trio drag Michael away, knowing that the evidence in the smashed car will, will probably let Nightfall know he was taken. When Michael regains consciousness, he finds himself dangling from a crane over a busy Gotham street from several stories up. If he activates his abilities, he's going to cut himself loose and fall to his death. Batgirl explains she knows he wants to help Gotham, but Nightfall's methods are unacceptable. She tries to appeal to his sense of morality, but before he can agree to help them, Nightfall's men come from them. However, the birds, as I'll call them, soon realize that these men didn't come to kill them, they came to kill Michael. They shoot through his bonds, but Batgirl leaps and saves his life. Moved by her effort, Michael reveals the plan to kill every criminal still remaining in Cherry Hill at midnight. It won't be as easy as breaking into her building anymore, though, because she's moved and she's brought in an army of mercs to do the job. Batgirl decides that if they're going to fight a war, her side is going to need a lot more soldiers so she places calls to melody mckenna catharsis who used to be with the disgraced and obscura the ex-college roommate for the last of those she is forced to broker a deal which was talked about in the past in exchange for manpower she's gonna have to work for obscura finally with one more call to make batgirl asks batman for the keys to the bat boat next up crash and burn I do want to talk a little bit about the art just to start off. The title image, meaning what we see kind of in the splash page when we see the credits and everything, 
has such a perspective that just makes Babs look like a demon if you look at it. And I don't really know why, but the art on her cow has really changed. The The ears are just super thick, especially when you see the perspectives. Later on in the book, you, you kind of see this. When it's close up, you see really thick ears. And when it's, when it's pulled back, you see them thinner. But uh, it's just a little weird the how the art suddenly changed I feel like it hasn't been like this um, because I would have noticed it before but I feel like the the ears should always be pretty slim and these are just like very bulky if anything so check that out it's just I don't know I don't really like it so the the first two pages of this book just prove and and really bring home the fact that Batgirl is messed up. I mean, she's not even listening to Huntress. She's leaping to conclusions because of the color scheme of Huntress's costume. I mean, there could be other people that wear purple. and I mean, Batgirl wears purple and black. So it's, I, I don't know, it's... It's a little bit of a stretch that you would automatically think, you know, this girl is obviously working with Nightfall. She says the quote, if she's wrong, I'll apologize later. I mean, and then, you know, when did she become that girl and hit first and ask later? And hey, my answer is probably since the New 52 started. And and she's been going off the deep end for a very long time now and really going crazy with beatdowns and and just very heavy-handed and as evidenced in Eternal which is another thing that happened where she's doing all of this potential like investigative work but on the way wrong track and leaping to conclusions then Jason Todd appears and and Jason Todd of all people is talking sense to her and telling her to do her proper legwork and saying she's somewhat out of control and blinded by all of this and I mean when Jason Todd tells you you need to simmer down I think that's a bit of a problem and and we're seeing this bleed into her into this book and and we see this happen just her go overboard and then moments later she'll say I gotta get over this I am over this and then the next issue will start the same and, and it's just like this broken record and, and I've been seeing this for how many issues now so it's really time to move on and I'm hoping that 35 come October I'm hoping that she does move on so the beginning of the previous issue, which is something that I really complained about, just that it came sort of out of note. We were really in Medias race, in the middle of things, and, and it just seemed like all this stuff happened between 31 and 32, and, and she's fed up with Nightfall, she's fighting these people. That beginning is much better explained in this issue. I mean, the fact that Batgirl was fighting a Nightfall cell. That wasn't, I mean, I could have leapt potentially to that conclusion, but I just thought it was a, a random group of mercenaries or perps, and then she went off on something else. But but I feel like this is, is much better explained, just the fact that there are these cells that she's fighting, that she goes to find potentially where their home base is, but everything's gone and moved, and and. And it's troubling that we explain it to a good degree, but it's it's somewhat late. And, and that was just a problem I had at the beginning of that other issue. It's just there was not a good lead into that. And, and this is where that potentially could have helped us. But, of course, you know, we got to add some exposition. And, and luckily Huntress is there. And maybe Huntress is symbolic or a metaphor for the readers because we were explained uh, by Batgirl what was going on. 
I wonder how Elysia is an exploitable asset when you think about it, because we that's obviously who she's talking about. How would she help? You know, sure, she can provide a name, but can she give a location of anything helpful? You can say Michael and does Batgirl, I mean, she's got to take many leaps. Think about it. She's just saying Michael. So Batgirl is going to assume that the, the Resnick heist, I guess we could call it, was connected to Nightfall. Not sure how she connected that exactly. And then if she does connect it to Nightfall, then she's got to think, well, I know of someone named Michael. His name's Bleak Michael. But then how do you find him? This is the whole problem I had with the killing joke. The fact that Joker found Commissioner Gordon's address and I I still even though I it was there was an attempt to dissuade me on this I still think that it is somewhat impractical because I think being a law enforcement officer that you probably would not have your address in an actual phone book I mean I even watched quite recently an episode where someone came home and there was a perp that uh, had just gotten let go on her porch and she went you know how did you get this address and I feel like that's something that would not be released because if it were in the white pages then anyone who got out of jail could find them and potentially take care of them so that's just something that I I don't agree with so I mean bleak Michael how was she able to find out where or was this parking garage you know just below where um, nightfall was and if so why would they worry about the car being smashed when you know she's got all those cameras so just kind of some holes in that whole situation here's a question do you think Alicia misinterpreting Bab's secret is that a missed opportunity because of course yes it's leading your dramatic pause and you can see the face on Babs the fact that oh no she knows my secret and then she says well you're obviously an undercover cop and I'm wondering I mean I'm fine with her not knowing let's be honest but I wonder what it would be like if Alicia actually knew Barbara Gordon's secret identity as Batgirl I wonder if that potentially could be a way to get rid of that character because she would realize that living with her is hazardous to her health and that way you could actually get rid of that character rather easily um she would just move out and and have life on her own and I mean you could kind of see that character I guess potentially with how she's been used that maybe she was strong enough to sort of support the secret and and be her girl Friday um her I don't know her oracle to the Barbara Gordon Batgirl but I don't know it, it would have been interesting to see if she actually picked it up but we kind of passed over that so there we go I do wonder why Bleak Michael all of a sudden is just this big cog in the wheel and, and bigger than normal. It, it almost seems like he's slightly apart from the team. Is it just because we're focusing on him that now, you know, he's he's got this different character design going on, uh, being written? Just the way that his interaction with Nightfall is just very odd. Not that he's, it didn't seem like he was taking orders, almost like he was someone that was hired and, and almost of equal status as Nightfall. I did like the fight scene with Huntress, Batgirl, and Canary uh, as they were fighting Bleak Michael. I thought that that was well handled. A little weird that Batgirl, I mean, when she sees Huntress leap at Bleak Michael, that she like just leaps to the assumption that Huntress can fly when there's no panel to... I mean, she probably just jumped at him. Who knows? 
the the Charisse in bed with two men. I mean, my whole thing was like, what the heck? Was this just like, let's have this image and, and six up Nightfall and and show what she's like? It's a little ridiculous, especially thinking about the fact of her, her and her boyfriend from way back when, before she went psycho or as she was going psycho and killed him and remember put him in that cage and everything so I don't know what will happen to those two men in there but really was that necessary why is Batgirl trying to reason at all with Michael again he seems to be taking on different character attributes than we've seen this entire time he's been ruthless and under the command of Nightfall I mean think of when he was the one calling the shots he was the one ready to blow up the Gordon household during that whole attack on Jim Gordon but now it seems like he could maybe be an okay guy. I mean, Batgirl maybe have his, has a chance to actually convince him. And, and, and where does that come from? And then she actually does convince him. He gives everything up. Again, is this the bleak Michael we've seen from the beginning? I think it's just a, com- a complete turnaround, something that doesn't really make sense for the character at all. Just an easy way to turn someone, turn a character around and, and get information and everything. And, and I think it potentially could have been better just to not get information from someone like this but maybe actually do some legwork and investigative work and figure out what's going on like that who are the shields specifically this group we see you know they're the shields uh they may be working for nightfall but are they just one cell are they a bunch of mercs just kind of wonder who they are are all the cells called the shields who knows I like that Batgirl's finally thinking. She's finally ready to work with a group of people, and she calls people that will actually be of use. And I even said, you know, where's McKenna? McKenna could be of use. So I'm glad that that finally came. And then even Batman, so finally. I think the walls are somewhat breaking down with the Batman problems that everyone's been having since death of the family and we've seen this in Robin Rises more specifically Batman and Robin 33 I believe so it seems like the Bat family is slowly getting back together and this could be a big step even though she's only asking to borrow the Bat boat so I'm going to give this 6 out of 10 bats there are some good moments like when the birds are fighting together I really got I mean it was just great to see like you could almost say the original birds even though Babs would have been Oracle at the time, but it was just great. When uh, I liked when Batgirl makes the all call, but then there are just really moments that either don't make sense, like Bleak Michael's character, or just further damage the character of Babs, which is just her going off the handle in the very beginning. Uh, so 6 out of 10, and you know, it's it's only sad. It's sad that Birds of Prey is not continuing because maybe we could get rid of Condor and slip Huntress in there. Uh, which would actually really, I mean, that would be easy to do because you have opened up a doorway right now with her being in she's already in this universe but when I say like in this universe now it's the fact that she's not off on her own she's really entangled with members of the Bat family Condor's got issues obviously with really liking Black Canary and Black Canary's got issues because maybe she likes Condor but she's got this husband that's not really dead but He doesn't really want her anyway. So it's very easy to potentially just give Condor a rush of feelings and he decides to leave the team and then they're down a member and Canary or Batgirl potentially thinks about this interaction and and feels like they would that Huntress would be a good member to join so like it would be so easy to write Huntress in Birds of Prey but unfortunately we don't have that option anymore so 
I would have emailed Christy Marks and given her my two cents. Okay, next up we have Birds of Prey 33. Pretty Lies and Ugly Truths. Writer Christy Marks. Pencilers Robson Rocha and Scott McDaniel. Inker Eau Claire Albert. Colorist Chris Sotomayor. In their attempt to rescue... Dr. Mambeti from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the birds of prey have run afoul of the Suicide Squad who had the same thing in mind. Naturally, Batgirl has no interest in giving up her charge to a team that includes someone like Harley Quinn. Harley takes offense and the two teams are soon in battle. Soon Batgirl regrets her hasty words, but it is Black Canary who puts a stop to the fight with a commanding tone and she demands that she be given access to Amanda Waller, whom she knows gives the Suicide Squad its orders. When Waller reveals herself against Deadshot's warning, she admits that she received the message that Dinah sent for her through Condor and this message had read simply, I have Kurt Lance. The squad recognizes the name of Kurt Lance as that of the man whom Regulus had stolen from them when Lawler had ordered them to find him. Ignoring them, Amanda demands to know what Dinah had wanted and getting her attention. Dinah responds that she just wanted her and grabs her up, soaring off with Amanda in her arms. Realizing that if Lawler dies, they will die because of those things implanted in their brains that will explode, the Suicide Squad gives chase, prompting yet another fight with the Birds of Prey who hope to give Dinah the time to work out whatever this grudge with Lawler is. Dinah drops Amanda on a roof, and she admits that she rescued her former husband from Regulus, who had told her that Amanda had kept Kurt alive all this time, but had never told her about it. Amanda explains that Kurt was dead. She had found his body in the ruins of Gamora Island and brought him back to life using technology developed from Resurrection Man's abilities. Dinah is still angry because Amanda had let her go on, thinking she'd killed Kurt, and the Black Ops community, of course, had been hunting her because of this fact. Amanda responds that the black ops were after her because she destroyed an island with her canary cry, and not because she killed Kurt. It had been Kurt who triggered that power in her, and, well, Amanda didn't want them to get together because of the destruction that had already been caused by their proximity. Dinah is still too angry to let Amanda go on with what she perceives as lies, and Amanda agrees to tell the whole truth, but it's going to be a whole lot uglier than Dinah may want to hear. Next up, we've got Things Fall Apart. So as with many of the previous issues of Birds of Prey, I, I don't have too many things to say about it. It wasn't astounding, but it, it wasn't bad. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it's just pushing on a story that's been going on, if you think about it, for a very long time with the Kurt Lance thing. The whole issue, if you think about it, was basically a big fight between the Birds of Prey and the Suicide Squad. And really, only when Waller shows up does the plot seem to thicken. Now, it's obvious that the squad wants Mabeti, but it's not at all obvious why. And shouldn't that be a priority? Shouldn't it be clear why he is so wanted? When Waller shows up, yes, the plot thickens, but it's so wacky. Uh, you know, she appears... And, and says, Dinah sent a message, Condor sent that message, didn't even ask questions about it, and that message is, I have Kurt Lance. 
Okay, so it's a it's a little strange. So I this is kind of these these are my main problems. It, it's all associated with with Dinah and Amanda Waller basically. So Batgirl is bent out of shape, obviously, and she should be because Dinah's making poor decisions that are potentially endangering the team, and she's doing everything for her personal reasons. Uh, this unfortunately, just like in Batgirl, it, it not only drags down her character, but it's also creating weird drama that just doesn't make sense why you would bring it into the book. I mean, she's already got stuff with Condor, she's got stuff with Kurt Lance, and now we're adding another person in the mix. So it's just like this uh, this soap opera that's involving Dinah Lance, and it's rather sad. So why now of all times is Dinah baiting Waller with Lance? If Dinah only says four words, how does Waller know where they are going? right? Does Waller send the squad for Mumbati? Or is she actually sending the squad for Dinah? Because the squad's under the assumption that they need to get the doctor. But it seems like Waller is ready to interact with Dinah and knowing. So that's something that's just somewhat unclear. I, I feel like the the message is a trigger for a lot of things, but it opens many questions, and I'm not really sure why they're here, how they came to be here, what are they really there for. Then Dinah leaves the rest of the team she, to deal with, you know, the squad, and she goes off to fight Waller, and just years and years of their problems come up. Comes up, you know, I've been watching Orange is the New Black, and for any of you who have watched this, uh, it, it reminds me of the, the one episode where uh, in, in the... the the shower in, as they call it, Spanish Harlem. All of a sudden, all of, like the sewage starts coming up in the showers, and that's that's what the problems. They all come up just like that stuff in the showers. Waller tries to explain, and of course, more secrets will be revealed, and they're going to be revealed and potentially resolve everything in all these years of the book, and all the years of Dinah and Kurt's relationship in one issue. The whole fight scene really just screams desperation on Dinah's side. You know, ending with, you wanted to steal my husband and keep him for yourself. Admit it. And that was just a moment I wanted to slap Dinah because she has suddenly turned into the new 52 Batgirl. I mean, how can she be so blinded to that? I mean, is that a logical conclusion to talk about? And I just, the timing of the whole thing is so weird. Why now does she want to do this? I mean, she should have done it way back when she first found out from Regulus who had had Kurt and Kurt was still in his coma. I do like, here's my positive note, I do like the interesting dynamics between the birds and the members of the squad that they're fighting and how they fight them and even Batgirl seeing Harley and going off the handle because she thinks of Joker right away. I approve of that. And at least this issue came before Joker's daughter came onto the team because frankly I don't think I could have stomached her being in this book. So there you go. Well, uh, I'm going to also give this a 6 out of 10, 6 out of 10 birds. Uh, I'm disappointed uh, that this is the story where we are leaving the book. Birds of Prey has a great deal of potential. Like the title itself, I feel, brings up great memories for many fans. 
you know, starting with those those minis and, and one issue stories from Chuck Dixon and then finally going to ongoing that you know, that first volume with Chuck Dixon and later with Gail Simone. And it, it's just a bummer that this is, you know, number one the book is ending, but number two, uh it's not ending strong necessarily. We've got thirty four which ties us up and, and frankly I don't know how it's gonna happen. Still don't know who choke is. Hello and and, uh, of course, you know, it. Oh, right now it's all centered on Dinah's dramas. And I realized she was the team leader in the beginning, but now she's not. Um, so it's just too bad. So six out of ten birds. Now over to Chris for the Batman 66 review. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Batman 66 review segment. Glad you could make it. Thanks for downloading. And as always... Thanks for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and this is the segment where I review the Batman 66 title. Before I get started with the reviews, I'd like to acknowledge an email I received and give a shout-out to Steve Rogers. Hi, Steve. Thanks for your kind words, and I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to write and for your feedback. Just as a reminder, any comments and feedback related to the podcast are greatly welcome and may be left under Comments on the Batgirl to Oracle podcast, on the Batman Universe website. Comments directed towards myself may be sent to bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. Now, on to the reviews. We're up to issue number 13, which was cover dated September 2014 for hard copy release. This was originally released in download format. The cover art was done by Michael and Laura Allred. The issue's only story is entitled, Don't Change That Bat Channel, and is written by Gabe Soria with art by Dean Haspiel. While on routine patrol, Batman and Robin see a billboard advertising a new TV show called The Dark Knight Detective. That Batterday Night at Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson, Bruce, Dick, and Harriet and Alfred gather around the television set to watch the premiere episode. The show, shot in black and white, depicts Batman in a suit and tie and is a dark, grim, gritty, and violent version. Batman dispenses with foes here with force and violence and that is referred to as the Bat Business. The show is an overnight hit, but when our dynamic duo go out to fight crime, citizen and criminal alike are expecting Batman to inflict Bat Business now, just like the TV character. Our heroes decide it best to go to the studio and meet with Fred Phillips, the producer of the new TV series. Phillips explains to our heroes that he wishes he could do stories about the real Batman, but if he did stories about Batman doing the Batusi and Batman going surfing, he would be laughed at. Phillips then tells our heroes that they're going to be the very special guest stars of the next live show, and our heroes are suddenly bound by cables from behind. Phillips then reveals himself to be False Face. The show begins to air live with False Face bringing out Batman and Robin to fight seven henchmen. A bat fight ensues with our heroes coming out victorious. Months later, the episode wins an award for outstanding achievement in broadcast arts, elating an imprisoned False Face. I thought this was a nice to see a different creative team here on Batman 66. I credit Soria with some clever comedic irony here. This was good stuff. Hopefully he'll do another Batman 66 story very soon. I didn't have any problems with Haspiel's artwork either. Malachi Throne played False Face on the 66 Batman TV series, 
and he may be best known for his recurring role on the TV series It Takes a Thief with Robert Wagner. Malachi Throne passed away last year at age 84. Batman 66, number 13, was something different and original, and I'm giving this issue 8.5 out of 10 bats. However, I do miss the two-story per issue format. Over in Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet number 3, when we last left, Cato and Robin were suffocating from instant glue on their faces. Batman agrees to let the Joker and General Gum leave with the loot in exchange for dissolving the glue from the sidekick's faces. However, the villains do escape with Cato and Robin in tow. Batman goes to the Batcave to see where the villains are likely to go, and the Green Hornet tags along, but not before he's gassed to sleep by Batman so he won't learn the Batcave's location. Once there, they ascertain the villain's likely hideout. Meanwhile, at the villain's lair, Cato and Robin are forced to fight. The winner gets his freedom. The other gets death at the teeth of Mr. Giggles, a shark. The sidekicks square off in a scene reminiscent of their classic confrontation from the TV episode crossover. Batman and the Green Hornet arrive, but the villains manage to escape. With the sidekicks reunited with their respective heroes, they then part ways. Back in the Batcave, Batman and Robin deduce that the villains will likely be after the priceless coin collection of Franco Ballo at the Currency Museum of the Gotham City National Bank. But the Green Hornet and Cato are already there, and they announce a stick-up to be continued. This story was entitled An Unlikely Pair, and it was written by Kevin Smith and Ralph Garman, cover art by Alex Ross, and the interior art by Ty Templeton. I thought Batman Meets the Green Hornet number 3 took a step back from the pacing and action and the lack of supporting cast that we had from the previous issue. The Alex Ross cover was magnificent. The issue itself, though, fell a little flat for me. I'm giving Batman 66 Meets Green Hornet number 3 6 out of 10 bats. Before I go, I hope all of you are having a good summer. I've been fortunate enough to attend some fun comic book-related events sponsored at a local comic book store, bookstore, and movie theater. If you're fortunate enough to live close to a bookstore or comic book store, see if they have any upcoming events that you can attend and be a part of. Will Batman and Robin prevent the Green Hornet and Cato from stealing a priceless coin collection? Or will they let them? Will Batman retire when a giant bat robot takes his place? These and other confounding questions to be answered next time. Same Stella time. Same Stella sight. Next up is Reading with Stella.
Reading with Stella presents Batgirl to Dare the Darkness by Doug Mensch. A story taking place in the Batman and Robin the movie universe. Copyright 1997, Little, Brown, and Company, New York. Chapter 8, Zombie City. Batman stood in shadows at the base of the gothic Wayne Tech building. He raised his left arm and there was a hushed chuff as his wrist grapnel shot upward, trailing his line. A soft clank and it was hooked over the deformed snout of a hideous gargoyle. Batman tested his weight on the line and found the grip secure. Swiftly, he began scaling the side of the building. Reaching the window he wanted, he deactivated the alarm and picked the lock. Then he slipped through the window and dropped into the gloom of the CompuLink lab. Like a living shadow, he moved straight for the personal workstation over Omen Sionis. Batgirl found the address she was looking for on a dark side street and cut the bat blade to a halt. Robin jammed the red bird's brakes and fishtailed to a stop right next to her. They were facing a vacant lot strewn with ancient rubble and years of weeds. So what's this? Robin asked. Batgirl allowed herself a brief, bitter smile. The home address, she said, listed by Roman Sionis in his personnel file. Okay, so there's maybe something weird about your boss, Robin said, unless he lives under a rock? I don't think so. A broken brick? Uh-uh. Basement apartment? Nope. Okay, so there's something definitely weird about your boss. Now what? Batgirl reached down to snap the cap from a small tube attached to the bat blade's frame. She fished out some papers. So now, she said, unrolling the papers, we fall back on these records I found in Roman's desk. Robin seemed surprised. You stole them? Batgirl shook her head. Photocopy them, she said. And see here? She leaned forward to hold the papers in the beam of her cycle's headlamp. Several areas were highlighted. He authorized three different shipments to an address which matches no client Wayne Tech has ever dealt with, past or present. And believe me, I checked. Robin was impressed. He gunned the Redbird's throttle. So why are we sitting here breathing rubble dust? Batman slid down his line, dropped to the pavement, and snapped his grapnel from the gargoyle. Although he had been unable to obtain definite proof in the lab, it was at least possible that Barbara Wilson's suspicions were correct. The young woman was admirably resourceful, if somewhat impetuous. But now it was time to pursue the lead Gordon had passed on from one of the original smugglers. Since the man was trying to plea bargain for less prison time, his information could well prove accurate. The Dark Knight melted into the shadow, coiling his line as he moved swiftly toward the Batmobile, waiting in an alley less than a block away. Dark side of the moon, Robin said. Looks like it used to be a nightclub, Batgirl said. Maybe back when you were shaking your booty in the disco days. Hey, speak for your own booty, girl. This was way before my time. All right, all right, Batgirl said. Let's just get down with our bad selves and crash this dead party, shall we? They had already hidden their cycles under an overpass several blocks away. Now, as carefully and quietly as possible, they pried a splintered sheet of plywood from a boarded-up window of the abandoned club. Batgirl peered into total blackness. There was nothing to see. She slipped inside. Robin followed. It was almost silent. Nothing but the soft stirrings and chitterings of rats and mice, maybe the sound of cobwebs fluttering in the breeze. Batgirl and Robin stood perfectly still, turning their heads from side to side, giving their eyes time to adjust. They seemed to be in a vast, empty space. Probably the main dance floor, Batgirl decided, back in the Jurassic era. She turned in Robin's direction and softly whispered, We should have worn our other masks, the ones with the night vision lenses. 
now you think of it, he hissed back. They waited another minute longer. Nothing lunched from the darkness. The ceiling did not collapse, nor did the floor crack open and swallow them whole. But they still couldn't see a blessed thing. Maybe this really was the dark side of the moon. Think it's safe? Batgirl whispered again. To use a light? Robin whispered back, do it, and we'll know. So she reached down to her belt and slipped a special pen light from one of its compartments. She didn't understand how or why, but it was far brighter than any similar flashlight she had ever seen. Brighter by a factor of ten, at least. Batman's own design, battle-tested in heavy-duty darkness. The tightly focused beam swept through nothing but empty space and floating dust. Batgirl slowed its sweep to a crawl, and finally, way in the back, it picked out the dull gleam of a doorknob. There, she whispered. If there's anyone or anything here, it's behind that door. She turned toward Robin, angling the light upward to avoid blinding him, and they were immediately surrounded by a thousand dancing flecks of light. They both gaped. A mirror disco ball, Batgirl breathed, almost in disbelief. Boogie on, Robin whispered. They slipped across the vast dance floor toward the gleaming doorknob. It was like crossing a hardwood ocean. Finally, Batgirl stationed herself facing the door. Robin flattened against the wall next to it. Ready? Batgirl whispered. It's your dance, Robin replied. Batgirl leaped forward, kicking the door right off its hinges. It banged and bounced and crashed into the small room beyond as she hurtled right past it, skidding and tumbling across the floor before rolling back up to her feet. Robin came off the wall and pivoted into the room right behind her. But they were alone. Batgirl held her stance for another beat, flicking her light into every corner, high and low. It was difficult to identify what was in the room, but nothing moved. She relaxed. Guess we can finally stop whispering, she said in her loudest voice. Yeah. Robin tried the wall switch on a whim, and it worked. How about that, he said. Let there be light. And proof, Batgirl said. Proof at last. She was making a beeline for racks of electronic components arrayed against the back wall. This is some of the equipment Roman requisitioned, which he said he was working on at home. Hey, Robin said, here's something even better. He was holding the face of a weeping clown. Several other masks were laid in a row across the workbench next to him. Yes, Batgirl exclaimed. We nailed it. Slots in the masks are empty, Robin said. Must be waiting for another shipment of mystery chips. Although they're hardly a mystery anymore, are they? No, Batgirl agreed. They're mind control chips. She had turned back to the component racks and was frowning as she skimmed her eyes across them. You know, she said, the really important Wayne Tech equipment is still missing. Like what? Robin asked. Like special amplifiers and converter circuitry that could work in tandem with those mind control trips. So where do you think that stuff is? Batgirl didn't answer. She was staring at a telephone on the workbench. She moved to it and pressed the button labeled display. A row of numbers filled the LED panel. Robin leaned his head in. So what's that? he asked. Last number called, Batgirl replied. She plucked the handset from its cradle. There was a dial tone. She stabbed redial and stuck the handset in Robin's startled face. Here, she said, you do the talking and pretend you're a black mascoon. Keep your voice low and rough. She cocked her head close to his, ready to listen in. And emotionless, Robin said as they listened to rings at the other end. Don't forget emotionless. Black mascoons are very big on monotone. Shh! The ringing had stopped. Red Arrow Radionics, a weary voice said, shipping. Uh, right, Red Arrow, Robin said in a phony zombie voice. I'm calling for Black Mask. 
Yeah, yeah, I told you. The shipment's on its way. Driver just called in, matter of fact. He's on Route 80. Should be hitting Gotham in about 10... in about 20 minutes. Robin didn't know what else to say, so he twisted his head to look past the phone at Batgirl. They were forehead to forehead. Batgirl raised an eyebrow. Uh, very good, Red Arrow. Robin vamped. And just to verify, the driver will be delivering at, at the address you gave us. The voice snapped roughly. Say, who is this anyway? Uh, sorry, wrong number, Robin boarded. Then he racked the phone as if it had turned into a hot potato. Batgirl managed to stifle her giggle, but not a smirk. Robin gave her a defiant look. What? he demanded. Nothing, she said, covering her mouth with a gloved hand. I just didn't realize you were such a smooth operator, that's all. Go ahead and laugh, Robin said, but you try being a zombie. His lower lip was actually thrust out. It's not that easy, you know. Batgirl burst out laughing. Is it harder, she sputtered, than being a rocket scientist or maybe a brain surgeon? She laughed even harder. How about a four-star general, a boy wonder? Robin's petulance didn't stand a chance. All right, he smiled. So maybe being a zombie only rates a three on the difficulty scale. Maybe even a minus ten. Now where does it leave us? Batgirl's laughter faded. Well, she said, the Red Arrow shipment, whatever it is, could be coming here. And on the other glove, Robin said, it could be going anywhere. Some different black mask hideout. Batgirl nodded. Yeah, she said. Maybe wherever the missing Wayne Tech equipment is. Robin's hand started moving as he worked it out. If the truck's coming off Route 80, then it'll probably take the Coit Causeway right over the hub, he said. And by the way, this shipment could be the lead Batman's following tonight. In which case, Batgirl said, he might need our help. He certainly needs proof that we can prove ourselves. A display of peerless prowess, Batgirl said. Efficient and exemplary teamwork, Robin said. Initiative without recklessness. Piece of cake. They slapped their palms high. The Batmobile was running without lights, and the truck driver was still unaware he was being tailed. Batman had waited opposite the Route 80 exit ramp, just as a smuggler had instructed. And the semi-trailer truck had not been difficult to spot, not with giant letters spelling Red Arrow Radionics across both sides. Now the truck was apparently headed for the long, elevated span of the Coit Causeway, placing its destination somewhere on the far side of the hub. Batman kept his distance, hoping the light traffic would thin even further. Right now, there were just enough oncoming vehicles to prevent him from overtaking the truck, should he wish to make such a move, and his options would narrow even more on the coit. Literally narrow, given the causeway's notoriously cramped lanes. But as long as the truck driver didn't spot him, it wouldn't matter. Then, just at the foot of the causeway, the truck abruptly veered and righted itself. Batman gave an involuntary snarl as he watched the driver's arm reach from the cab window to adjust the large side mirror. That was it, then. He'd just been spotted in the mirror. No sense staying back now. He flicked on the Batmobile's powerful headlamps, and the truck veered wildly in response. Horns blared. Up ahead, an oncoming car tried to get out of the truck's path, but had nowhere to go. It swerved into the guardrail, grinding off a long spray of sparks. Batman could see the car was out of control and might spin off the rail into his path. He stomped the accelerator and shot ahead to prevent it. There was a long squeal behind him, and then he was forced to jam his own brakes before he ran right up under the semi, more than likely shearing off the Batmobile's roof and quite possibly his own head as well. He watched the Batmobile's front end go under the truck. It would be close. He held the brake and fought the wheel. The truck's bumper grazed the windshield right in front of him. 
and then there was separation as the Batmobile continued to slow and the truck struggled up the steep grade of the causeway. Batman faded to a safe distance and simply followed. There was nothing else he could do, not while they were here on the narrow causeway, not without endangering innocent drivers. He had hoped to follow the truck all the way to Black Mask. Now that the truck driver had spotted him, however, he might lead Batman on a merry chase to nowhere, but hardly straight to Black Mask. He wished there was some way to stop the truck. The oncoming vehicles were still blaring and screeching and skidding into the guardrail. Some rear-ended, and the truck itself had bashed at least three or four others. They were nearing the summit of the causeway's elevation, and it was a long drop to the dark buildings and avenues of the hub below. Disaster seemed inevitable, if a section of guardrail gave way. The Red Arrow driver was so intent on watching the Batmobile in his mirror that he almost missed the spectacle right up front. There was a long gap in the traffic, and it was the snapping of the capes that finally caught his eye. He looked forward just in time to see two weird motorcycles veer into his lane. Incredibly, they popped wheelies right in his face and kept on coming. He could have plowed right through them, but instead he panicked. He had never seen anything like this, and he simply didn't know what to do. So he did the worst thing possible. He slammed on the brakes, spun the wheel, and jackknifed his semi at the crown of the Koi Causeway. And, since he was not wearing his seatbelt, he also slammed his thick head unconscious. Batman ejected from the Batmobile, soared through the air, and landed at the rear of the jackknife truck. All traffic had halted. He wasn't sure why the truck had lost control, but he was more interested in the nature of its cargo. Glad that the danger had passed, he opened the back of the truck and froze. Inside were a half-dozen masked thugs, all pointing large guns at his head and chest. The sound of bullets jacking into chambers was loud and menacing and unmistakable. Creeping along the top of the truck, Batgirl and Robin were about a dozen feet short of the rear when they heard the weapons being primed. Batgirl caught sight of Batman and instantly stomped the truck roof as hard as she could. Then she and Robin dived forward to the rear edge as bullets ripped and stitched through the roof behind them. Together they flipped over the edge and swung down into the back of the truck, already kicking and batting weapons aside. Then they went to work on the masks. It was all over in no time, and there was little for Batman to do other than watch. Robin hunched over a crate deep in the truck as Batgirl dropped down to face the dark night. The driver's out of it, she said. Won't be talking for hours. Nothing in here but more mind-controlled chips, Robin reported. Enough to build the ranks of the False Face Society into a real army. He dropped out of the truck to join them, but still worthless, I assume, as clues to Black Mass's larger scheme. Batgirl indicated an unmasked thug hanging out of the truck. And even if we'd left any of these maskers awake, she said, they'd be just as useless as all the others. Brain blank stooges. And having thus assessed and reported the situation, Batgirl and Robin fell silent and stood waiting. Batman stared at them for a long time. You did well, he finally said. Both of you. It was the opening Batgirl had hoped for, and she rushed to fill it. We've been thinking, she said quickly, instead of seeing us as a double responsibility, why not cut your worry in half now that you have a second partner? She had actually worked on the line in advance, hoping it would appeal to a sense of cool, rational logic. But again, Batman just stared, his dark mask betraying nothing. Oh, come on, Robin said. At least Batgirl and I can watch each other's back, and that frees you up, right? Then he reached over to slap Batgirl's back, as if presenting this year's new and improved model. And by the way, he continued proudly, she was totally right about that weird boss of hers. If he's not Black Mask himself, Roman Sionis is definitely fused to the geek spine. We found big-time proof all over the place. Batman turned away, looking out over the guardrail at all the city's lights below. 
You did demonstrate teamwork and initiative, he conceded. But not too much recklessness, Robin cracked. Batgirl kicked his ankle, then extended her fist in front of Batman. Partners? she asked. Robin hopped forward on his good leg and touched his fist to hers. They both waited. The Batman hesitated. And then made the fist three. Partners, he said. On cue, the bat signal blazed upward through the sky until it was stopped by a dark cloud high above the causeway. Here's his blackmail demand, Commissioner Gordon said grimly to the three heroes facing him on the roof of police headquarters. He held a finely detailed Chippewa ceremonial mass made from sheets of white birch bark. It's inscribed on the inner surface. Fifty million dollars by midnight or I unleash Elf to black out and blank the whole city. Although I don't understand what's so threatening about an elf. ELF, Commissioner, Batman said. Extremely low frequency microwaves. The key to the EDOM and RHIC technologies I told you about. Gordon grunted. Which he uses to control his gang members. And now he's threatening to turn it on all of Gotham. But how he hopes to mask everyone in the city, I don't... He doesn't have to, Batgirl interjected. Not with the equipment he's stolen, and a twisted application of parallel-linked computer sequencing. Everyone turned to her. It was clear that she spoke with authority, holding the key to their questions. Even Gordon was now regarding her as a serious equal, searching for his city's salvation somewhere in her masked face. She glanced at Batman and caught his eye. He remained silent, but she could tell he had already figured it out. Master detected that he was. He might even be way ahead of her. Yet he was willing to let her do all the talking and seem like the brilliant one. She could have hugged him, if he weren't so scary anyway. She took a breath and began slowly, knowing she had to avoid blowing her other identity as Barbara Wilson. So when she told Gordon about Roman Sionis, she made him seem like a suspect who was under surveillance rather than her boss. He's made various statements, she said, about hive minds enslaved to a single master controller. He also raved about parallel linkage of human brains, something he bragged he could accomplish with the right kind of radionics and delivery system, and a signal of the proper frequency transmitted into every home. ELF frequency, Gordon said, but what kind of delivery system? Batman provided the final piece. The transmitting tower, he said, atop the Wyvern building. Batgirl looked at him, and they both nodded at the same memory. Roman actually showing the notes and blueprints for his master plan of Bruce Wayne, using the proof of his guilt as evidence for his innocence. The man's audacity was astounding. Whoa, Robin said. I'm just getting it now. Really getting it, I mean. The city's main telephone and cable feeds are located at the top of the Wyvern, too, aren't they? So if he takes control of that building, he can reach everyone with the radio, television, computer, or phone, which means zombie mush for just about every brain in the city. More than that, Batman said, the power surge from such an ELF feed will blow out every electronic device in the grid and result in a massive power failure as well. A darkness of zombies, Batgirl murmured, and a nightmare for outside rescue workers. Gordon looked worried. Then his ELF really can blank and black us out, unless I can get City Hall to agree to his ransom demand by midnight. Batgirl shook her head. I think he'll do it even if you pay, Commissioner. I think he wants to do it. Besides, he's got nothing to lose, and a whole city of slaves to gain. Then what can we... We can stop him, Batgirl said, and we will. Batman and Robin were already heading for the edge of the roof. I know we just redeemed ourselves and all, Robin said. So you may be shocked to learn that we're still not exactly perfect. 
we uh we kind of forgot our night lenses, see, and all this talk about blackouts and spare sets, Batman said, in the car. Then he turned to see what was keeping Batgirl. If you have just another minute, Gordon asked. Batgirl turned back to the commissioner, who somehow seemed both nervous and grateful. Frankly, he said, I really didn't know what to make of you at first. I could tell. It's just that... Well, I have a daughter roughly your age. I guess I worry about her too much, and I wasn't sure it was wise of the Batman to take on another partner. I can see now that my doubts were misplaced. He extended his hand. Batgirl reached out to clasp it. I shared a few of those doubts myself, she said. But you're right, Commissioner. They were misplaced. Then she turned and loped across the roof to join her waiting partners. They had less than two hours to pull off something big, maybe even a miracle. If they failed... Gotham would become a city of zombies. To be concluded. And finally, we've got my literature recommendation. So I do have one original graphic novel I would like to recommend, and it's Black Canary and Zatanna Bloodspell by Paul Dini, and the artist is Joseph A. Quinones Jr. And just really fun, just a great team-up. It's based on a high slash undercover uh, job that Black Canary did early on and then a spell is put on her and then Zatanna comes into play because of you know the magic that went on so there's some undercover stuff there's some magic and it's just fun to see them interacting and see Black Canary uh, in all her glory and and uh, just kind of the the old school Black Canary you can almost think of and just a, a fun story so I do recommend that and then this summer, I decided I'm going to try to read. I have that huge, you know, if you have been listening from the beginning and you remember my blog spot, there was connected to the blog spot books like my reading list. It was stellasreadinglist.blogspot.com, something like that. And I had just A through Z organized by authors, just this crazy reading list so I decided and I had been breaking it down you know little by little reading things here and there and of course I had already read some books so I was able to cross them off but this summer I decided I'm going to finish reading the chunk of books that are authored by someone whose last name starts with an A so it was about six or seven books already that I was looking at and I actually did finish it I did a couple extra uh, that aren't in the A so I was able to crack down there but I'm going to go through the ones that I've read because I've already there are several Austins there were one two three Jane Austen novels and I think I've already recommended them in the past but I'm going to go through not really tell you about them unless I really think there's a need to but I'm going to say if I recommend it or not because there are some that I just did not like so Monsieur Proust by Celeste Alberet or Alberet don't speak French I'm sorry I'm going to say that's a yes it was actually very interesting it's nonfiction. Uh, the last 10 years of uh, Marcel Proust's life I don't know if you could really tell, call her a caretaker but she was there to help him just in the house and everything and so it's it's all of Celeste's experiences about him and I thought it was really interesting and if you're a Proust fan I suggest reading it Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee this is a play yes I have yet to see because there's a Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor on Amazon instant and uh, it's crazy I mean it's like it's a bad marriage <laughs> but it, it was interesting so I'm gonna say yes 
The Kitchen Boy by Robert Alexander. Yes, I think this was perhaps the first book that I read this summer. And it's, oh, I, I didn't I already talk about this one? I talked about this one, I remember. Brick Lane by Monica Ali. I'd say yes. I actually, this is one of two um, Indians, in European, Asian Indians, that talk like a lead and then they're in England and so kind of learning about that culture which was interesting so brick I, I'd say yes Handmaid's Tale Margaret Atwood no Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood no and frankly I'm just a no for the Atwood dystopian futures which you know love them or hate them I have yeah, I like Hunger Games but I don't I don't know I do not like her storytelling it's just non-linear and to a certain extent I can handle it but it was just all over the place did not like it and then Oracle Night by Paul Oster yes if you like Slaughterhouse 5 there's kind of a sense of that in this novel it's very interesting it's a quick read it really pulls you in actually and it's it's a little weird and and I feel like I want to read it again just to figure out what was going on but uh, I, I do recommend that so those are all the A's and then there were two that I read that weren't A's the Manticore by Robertson Davies this is a hard one because it was part two part one wasn't in <laughs> it wasn't on my list so I had to look on Wikipedia and read all about it it I I don't know I could have done without it to be honest so I'll say no but you can look it up obviously and, and check it out and then the other one was the namesake by oh this is gonna be bad Juhumpa Lahiri and I'd say yes that was again and I actually liked that better than the brick lane and that's my other Asian Indian led story uh, so namesake over brick lane so there you go lots of things that you could potentially check out if I were to go for I really liked kitchen boy so and monster Bruce uh, I think would be like the top two that I would say you need to definitely check out okay well I think that is it Thank you for all the questions and comments you sent. Uh, I think it was just spurned on by the killing joke, but I, I'm glad to, to get them, and, and I hope they keep on coming. And In July, I found out that I got 21,000 downloads, which is just astounding, astounding to me, because I think when I started this, I was like, well, if I get 100 or 300, you know, I'll be happy. But 21,000, my goodness. Thank you so much. I'm very appreciative. Send any questions or comments, of course, at backroadtooracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Like the Batman Universe on Facebook as well. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics and Tweaked Audio for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, I know the little kitties are gearing up for school. I got to gear up too. So gotta got to live it up as much as you can. So until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. I love a happy ending, don't you?